my name is Austin. I'm a pastor here at TLC. I get to teach every now and again. Before I get started, uh, do we have any Spy Kids fans uh, in the room? Yeah, okay. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but when I saw this graphic for the first time, uh, there's a scene in Spy Kids 2 when Carmen and Junie are just falling for like five minutes in like a volcano thing, and doesn't that make you think of that? <laughs> I just can't get it out of my head. If I'm referencing Spy Kids throughout uh, the morning, I'm sorry. Okay. No, hey, my name, like I said, my name is Austin. Happy Labor Day. Uh, I am on staff here. I love my job, uh, and I love that I get to teach every now and again. So uh, before we, or as we get started this morning, uh, we do this thing on Instagram or social media. Uh, maybe you guys are familiar with it. I hope you are. Otherwise, the next two minutes are going to be really awkward. Uh, <laughs> but when we see something beautiful, like when we experience beauty, when we have a moment that like, takes our breath away, uh, we experience it. And then we have to take a picture of it, and then we have to post it, right? Like that's, it's like a fire in our bones. Like if the world doesn't see this, then I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Like I have to make sure that the world sees it. So for example, uh, I, now we're all guilty of this, okay, including myself. In fact, uh, I thought I could expose myself uh, in front of you guys this morning, uh, like on my Instagram feed, uh, not way you might have been thinking. So when we see, uh, when we see a, a beautiful mountain or something like that, we think we have to post a picture like this. That's me, okay? Like, what am I doing? Am I in like a Christian music video thing where like, you know, like, what's happening? Uh, so we have to do this, right? Or like, say we see a beautiful body of water. We feel the need to post like this super over-filtered uh, picture that looks like this. Like, okay, that's cool. Like, what I saw was cool, but that's like, Instagram Lark is doing a lot of the work there, okay? Like, it's way too much. Now, the, the, the queen bee of Instagram cliches of experiencing beauty and having to post it, some of you may know what I'm going to say, is sunsets. It's just, it's, it's the worst, uh, and I am guilty of it myself. In fact, uh, I think the w- a step above sunsets is actually when there's a, a group of people that experience a sunset, and they all feel the need to post, like, the same variation, a different variation of the same picture. Okay, so I went on spring break with a group of friends, and we experienced, like, a really cool sunset. So, uh, and you can't really even see it in that picture, but that's a group of us. We do have on matching shirts uh, because we're lame. And uh, now, that's one picture, okay, so we're going to count. Uh, there, I think there's like nine people in this picture. So let's count how many people posted a different variation of the same picture and just filled everyone's timeline for no reason at all. Ready? One, look at this. What are we doing? We're like linking arms. Like, what's happening? All right, two. We have another one. Third, selfie. You know, you got to get the selfie, of course. Uh, no, that's three. Another one. We have four, got to get the ladies, you know, just pla- classic, uh, candid, you know, they're just falling. That's four. Uh, what are we, a boy band? Like, what are we doing? And that's not, the sunset's not even in that one. Like, we're just like, man, let's just get a good picture. That's five. And th- six, we have, uh, you know, just another group of us, different group, same place, same picture, whatever. Uh, six, and this is the worst one. I'm so embarrassed. And here's the worst part about this one, okay? This was my idea. This picture was my idea. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. Beauty is an interesting thing, right? When we experience beauty, not only do we have to, you know, take a picture of all of that, 
uh, but it sticks with us. And when people think of beauty, they think of a lot of different things. Some of us think of like physical beauty, and we start like measuring our faces, and we're you know doing the ratio to see how symmetric we are. And some of us think of like phys- or nature, you know, when we think of beauty. We think of sunsets, we think of uh, beautiful landscapes and massive mountains. But many of us have experienced like a, this hidden powerful beauty that it's hard to describe, it's hard to explain, but we've experienced it. The beauty that holds the entire universe together. You see, any moment that we've experienced that's beautiful, any moment that has taken our breath away is just an extension and an expression of the essence of God. You see, we are attracted toward the beauty because we are created and we're designed by the beautiful one. It's in our souls and it's in our bones. It's almost like we can't help it. And the thing with beauty, the thing that God God has created this beautiful world And he sent his son, Jesus, who is the fullness of this hidden beauty. He's the embodiment of this hidden beauty. And his life was so beautiful that it has attracted and impacted millions and millions of people over multiple centuries. Jesus' life is the beautiful one. And as a church, the thing that we want to be about, like if we fail in every other way but we succeed in this, the thing that we want to be about is helping others fall more and more in love with Jesus, the beautiful one. And our job is kind of hard in some ways, but it's kind of easy in others. Because we are attracted towards beauty. We are attracted towards the beautiful one. And one of the things that we get to do as a church, one of the things that we try and do around this time of year in the fall, is we try and continually invite and remind ourselves of the church that God has called us to be. And as a church, we we have these seven values that hang out in the lobby. You guys might have seen those uh, as you walked in this morning. And those seven values just help us, they guide us and they keep us on track to be the church that God has called us to be. They don't make us better. They don't make us more important than any other local church. In fact, they actually cause us to need other local churches. But they they help guide us. They help keep us to be the church we feel God has called us to be, a church that is constantly helping others and inviting others to fall more and more in love with Jesus. You see, because we believe that Jesus changes everything. Like the minute that Jesus grabs a hold of your life, the minute that he's the most important part of your life, everything else begins to take care of itself. Everything else begins to change. The way that you want to spend your time, the, the way that you, uh, the type of people that you want to be around, everything begins to change. It's a complete reorientation. Have any of you ever been in a, a friendship or a relationship or a marriage uh, where you found yourself doing something that you never thought you would do and even enjoy? Like, you're like, what am I doing? Why do I like this? I thought I would hate this, but now I like this because this person that I care about, they enjoy this. Anybody? Anybody, uh, you know, familiar with that? I tried to think of an example of this. Uh, it's kind of a crappy example. I'm sorry I suck at my job, uh, but this is, the, this is the best I could come up with. My wife, Olivia, uh, she's sitting, yeah, there she is. Uh, she can raise her hand. Uh, she used to hate blueberries. <laughs> what? She hated blueberries, okay? She didn't like blueberries. Now, blueberries are like one of my favorite fruits. Maybe, maybe like, probably two. Cantaloupe's my top, uh, which is a very uncommon one. If you're not down with it, get out, okay? Cantaloupe is the best. Uh, no, I love cantaloupe. But blueberries are probably second. Like, I love blueberry pie. I love all things blueberry. 
and Olivia hated blueberries. But then we got married, and I needed blueberries in the house. So uh, we would have blueberries, and all of a sudden she started eating blueberries. And now the woman is obsessed with blueberries. Like, I joked with her this week uh, that I was like, babe, you're going to turn into, like, the, the blueberry, like, the Willy Wonka blueberry girl. Like, you're eating so many blueberries. And I kid you not, I got into bed uh, one night this week, and uh, I, I pulled off the covers, and I saw something that I thought looked like a bug. And I kind of freaked out for a second, and I was like, I'll take care of it. And, uh, you know, I'm so brave. Uh, and, <laughs> and so I, I went to grab, like, what I thought was a bug, and then I held it, and I realized it was like one of those little stems that pops out of a blueberry. You know, like the little stems that are still kind of stuck on there? And I said, oh, babe, you really set yourself up for the, this week because I had already decided I, this was going to be my crappy example. And, uh, and I said, oh, babe, you're done for. She was eating blueberries in bed and wasn't even clean. You know, she had the little stems all over our bed. But that's what happens, right? Like when you fall in love with someone... Everything begins to change. Things that you care about, people that you care about begin to change. That's what Jesus is like. Like Jesus is like blueberries times like a thousand, okay? He changes everything. What you couldn't believe about yourself is now the truest thing about you. The way that you spend your time, your money, and your effort, you would never would have imagined it now has your full attention. When Jesus grabs a hold of your life, when he's the most important thing about you, What was dead is now alive. Empty is now full. What was ugly is now beautiful. You see, Jesus changes everything. We believe that here at TLC. Jesus changes everything, and and we see that in the life of this dude named Paul. Paul was this dude who lived like 2,000-something years ago, and Jesus came into this man's life in a dramatic, dramatic way, and everything else began to change. Paul began going around to all kinds of different places and telling all kinds of different people about Jesus. He started planting churches, and then he started writing letters to those churches in the places that he had been. In fact, we just spent eight weeks uh, this past summer going through a book called Philippians. And Philippians is actually just a a letter written by Paul to the city in Philippi. So Paul's going in all these places, and he's planting churches, and he's he's talking to people about Jesus. And in the book of Acts, uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uh, is telling some different stories about Paul. And that's where we pick up this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 34, uh, if you guys can follow along with me. Also, I, I apologize in advance if I'm a little uh, scatterbrained. Uh, my family is here this morning. Uh, they're here in the, the front right. I'm going to uh, embarrass them. And uh, it's, you get really nervous when your family's like watching you do something. Uh, so, so I do apologize. But uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 34. Uh, if you guys can follow along with me, I will read. It says, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down, and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Theatria who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. 
This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept uh, this up for many days. And finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and they said, These men are Jews and are, th- and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and to be beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke to the word, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then they immediately, he and all his family, were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Pretty cool stuff, right? Now to understand what's going on here, you see Luke is telling this story. And to understand what's really going on here, it's really helpful to understand these three individuals. You see there's three people that Paul interacts with. So we have first, imagine this is sort of like a movie scene where we're doing like a quick profile on each person, okay? So first we have Lydia. Now it says Lydia was a dealer of purple cloth, which means she had the money, okay? She had it going on. She probably owned her own home. She owned her own business. Uh, wasn't super common for the time, but uh, she, she had it going on. She's a good person. She's a moral person. It even says that she was a worshiper of God, which is uh, just a way of saying that while she wasn't an Israelite, uh, she worshiped the Jewish God. In fact, uh, it says uh, they went to a place uh, of prayer, uh, which is just a fun fact for you. That's kind of an ancient way of saying that they went to a place where they knew people were going to be worshiping God, but it wasn't a synagogue uh, because it didn't meet the requirements. Uh, and just another fun fact, uh, there's a group of women here. And so it's, we can kind of assume the reason this wasn't really a synagogue was you needed 10 Jewish men to be categorized as a synagogue. And this group of women are getting together and they're praying. So they're not a synagogue, but Paul goes to them and he goes to Lydia, the first conversion in the city of Philippi, which is just cool. Right, ladies? That's cool, right? Anyway, so Lydia, is this, she's got it going on, right? She's, she's a good moral person. She's like the type of person you'd let do your taxes. She's the type of person who like goes to Christmas and Easter service. Like She's got it going on, except she doesn't have Jesus. The hope and the life and the truth of Jesus has not been made known to her. And God comes to her through a rational discourse with Paul. And she said, immediately recognizes the hope and the life of truth in Jesus. And she says, I want in. I need that. And her life is forever changed. And the city of Philippi is forever changed because of Lydia. 
So that's first, Lydia. The second person in this story that Paul interacts with is a, a slave girl. We're not even given her name. We're just told that she's a slave girl. She's exploited, powerless. She's impoverished. She's been taken advantage of in every way. In fact, she's quite the opposite of Lydia. You see, if Lydia, imagine Lydia as sort of like the, the wealthy businesswoman living on the Upper East Side, this slave girl is like the teenage drug addict living on the streets, oppressed in every way, spiritually, physically, and emotionally, and she's hounding Paul and Silas on the streets to the point that it says Paul became troubled. And you may be like, well, what do you mean became troubled? You see, Paul knows exactly what's going to happen if he intervenes. And it's what happens. He ends up in jail, right? But it gets to the point, Paul becomes troubled, and, and it says that it, he spoke the name of Jesus, and immediately the spirit left her. You see, God came to Lydia through a rational discourse, but, and Jesus grabbed a hold of this slave girl's life, but in a much different way, through a powerful, spiritual, emotional encounter. The moment that Jesus' name was spoke, the spirit left her. You see, she was totally oppressed, and Jesus totally liberated her. So that's the second person. So we have Lydia, we have the slave girl, and finally, we, ha we have a male. Just so Jesus cares about men too, okay? We have a jailer, this prison guard. That's our third person. Now, it's pretty safe to assume that, that this jailer was a Gentile, which just means that he wasn't a Jew. He wasn't an Israelite. You see, many uh, prison guards were former Roman soldiers. Former Roman soldiers, upon completing service, were gifted with steady civil servant jobs. And one of the most common ones uh, was prison guards. And so this guy, uh, you know, he may not be like the outstanding success like Lydia, uh, but he's not what would have been perceived as the outstanding mess uh, like the slave girl. If you picture Lydia as the wealthy businesswoman living on the Upper East Side and you picture the, uh, the slave girl as a teenage drug addict living on the streets, you can kind of picture uh, this jailer as sort of like the guy living in the suburbs, working at the post office, has a good job supporting his family, and his life is pretty fine. It's pretty good. He doesn't seem to have any spiritual interest. I mean, these two people, Paul and Silas, are brought into his jail. He puts them in the inner, inner cell, which is like the worst place to be. Uh, it's like, you know, the back of the bus or the front of the bus. I don't know. What's the worst part in the bus? I don't know. Um, but it's like the worst spot to be. He doesn't show them any compassion, and he doesn't really, we have no indication of any conversation, which it was kind of open for conversation, right? Like Paul and Silas are in jail because they've been talking about Jesus and stuff, and this guy has no real interest. You see, he's a former Roman soldier. He's a practical man who values one thing, honor. He values honor. Do you see, I mean, do you see, you heard how he reacts when the earthquake happens and, the, and the, the jail breaks loose. He's ready to take his own life. And he's ready to take his own life because the consequence of, of prisoners escaping for a prison guard was public execution. And so this man knows that his life is over, but in public execution, your life isn't just taken away, your honor is also stripped from you. And so this man, before he even sees the prison guard, the prisoners leave, he says, I'd rather take my own life. I'd rather spare my honor. But he sees Paul and Silas' faith in action. You see, a rational discourse may not have worked like Lydia. A powerful spiritual emotional encounter may not have worked. But this man saw Paul and Silas' faith in action. He saw the impact that Jesus had on their life and the way that they lived. He saw joy in the midst of deep suffering, and he saw compassion, the, Paul and Silas' compassion on someone who had shown them no mercy as they convinced all of the prisoners to stay for the sake of this man's life. Three very different people who had a powerful, a powerful interaction with Paul that changed their life and Jesus, as Jesus grabbed a hold of theirs. 
Now, oftentimes, this text, this story, some of you may have heard, you may be familiar. Oftentimes, it gets talked about in a way of talking about sharing your faith and how God is present and moving in everyone's life uh, as, we, as we talk with them and share our faith. And that's totally true. Uh, and that, that shines through in this text, in this story. But I think sometimes what happens with the Bible, with the text sometimes, is we miss, we don't talk about the things that are obvious because, well, they're obvious. Like, they're not sexy, they're not cool to talk about. But sometimes what happens is I think we miss the forest for the trees. And here's what I mean with this text. These are three very different people. They look different even. Lydia would have appeared Middle Eastern. The slave girl, we have no idea where the slave girl is from. And the, the jailer would have appeared, uh, he's Roman, uh, he would have appeared European almost uh, in, in physical stature. They have nothing in common, these three people. And they have very little in common with Paul, the person that they interact with each time. In fact, in some ways they may have been in opposition to Paul. And here's what I mean. Paul, Paul we know was a previously known as Saul. So when Jesus came into his life, changed his name, but before that he was Saul. And before Jesus came into his life, he was like a zealous, zealous Jew. He was a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He had the Old Testament memorized. He was worshiping in the synagogue all the time. Like, he had it going on. In fact, Paul was such a a zealous Jew that it had led him to the point of persecuting and killing Christians. You see, at the time that Jesus lived and died and raised again, all these Christians started making these crazy claims, and the Jews were like, we got to get rid of these people. we got to put them out. And Paul was one of those people persecuting and killing Christians. You see, Paul was like the ultimate Jewish man, the OG, I think Torin called him a little bit ago. Like the OG Jewish man. He even says this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. I think we have it. It says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is Paul talking. If you have reasons in the flesh to have confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul's like, listen, I am the ultimate Jewish man. And if we, we know several things about ancient Israel, ancient Jewish men, and one of the things that we know uh, is a, a controversial Uh, prayer. And I'm not here to debate about it. I'm not here to say that Paul prayed this prayer ever. I'm not here to say Paul prayed this prayer every morning. But we can say with almost out a doubt that Paul would have been familiar with this prayer. And the prayer goes something like this. Oh Lord God, I thank thee that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Again, I'm not saying that Paul prayed this prayer every day. I'm not even saying that he prayed it ever. I am saying that Paul would have been familiar with this prayer. That this would have filled Paul's imagination, that this was part of his worldview, that he worshipped in a synagogue designed around this hierarchy, a court for Gentiles, a court for women, and the inner court for Jewish men. You see, to be a woman or a slave or a Gentile was less than desirable. It was lacking beauty. And the first three conversions of this new church plant in the city of Philippi that Paul is interacting with are in a very particular order by Luke. You see, they're in a very particular order, a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. You see, Luke knows his ancient audience. He's he's writing this to his audience, and he knows that when his audience reads this story, they're going to be like, what? Paul? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile? 
You see, Luke wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is breaking barriers that often separate humans. That Jesus is making all things new. That what was, what was dead is now alive. What was despised is now beautiful. Luke wants to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is making a church that consists of believers from diverse backgrounds and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses because Jesus knows that his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, will be full of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and that the more types and the more traditions and the more backgrounds and the more ethnicities and the more abilities that represent his community, the better we will reflect the beauty of the kingdom of God to others. Why? Because different is beautiful. We are attracted. We gravitate toward the beautiful because we are designed by the beautiful one who created us for it. This is at the very heart of Jesus' life and ministry. One of the many things. It's at the heart of the New Testament that would later testify about Jesus. This idea that different is beautiful. That Jesus is making all things new. He's separating the barriers. And that we are better and we are stronger and we are more beautiful because of our diversity. You see, when we fall in love with Jesus, we fall for beauty and we fall for different. That's what we see in the life of Paul. And that's what we see in the life of the church. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion that for the duration of its existence, its geographic epicenter has not been in the same place? By geographic epicenter, I basically mean uh, where a lot of the growth is happening, where a lot of the writing and, the, and the, the leaders are coming from. You see, a couple examples. Islam has always, geographic epicenter, always been in the Middle East. Confucianism, always in China. Uh, Buddhism, always in Asia. Hinduism, always somewhere in India. But Christianity... It's geographic epicenter where a lot of the the growth is happening, where a lot of the the writing and the thinking and the leaders are coming out of, has shifted countless times throughout history. It started as as a Middle Eastern religion in Jerusalem, right, with the Jews. And then it shifted to the the Mediterranean and the ancient Hellenistic part of the world. And then in the Middle Ages, it shifted to Northern Europe, And stayed there for a while. And then more modern, it began to shift to North America. And now, it's slowly shifting again. It's slowly shifting to to places in Africa and places uh, in Southeast Asia like Korea and China. Did you know that there there are more Christians in Korea, China, and the continent of Africa than there are in all of North America and all of Western Europe combined? There is incredible writing, incredible leaders, incredible growth happening in those places. You see, the epicenter is slowly shifting yet again. And why is it shifting? Because different is beautiful. The hope and the life and the truth of Jesus transcends all people and all cultures and all times. You see, Jesus isn't for this type of person or that type of person. He's not for the rich or for the poor. He's not for men or women or this culture or that culture. No, you see, Jesus is for all people in all cultures and all times. And when we fall in love with Jesus, we fall in love with beauty. We fall for different. We are captivated by that truth. Let me be clear, though. When we fall in love with Jesus, when Jesus grabs a hold of our heart, when he's the most important part about our life, 
It's not like Jesus is just going around creating more beautiful things, like poof, boom, pow, more beautiful things. If Jesus did that, that's how he would do it, though. Can, can I just say that? No, like, that's not how he does it. You see, he slowly, slowly begins to change our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls and our relationships so that things that we didn't care about at all are now beautiful. People that we didn't care about at all are now beautiful. You see, when we fall in love with Jesus, we fall for beauty and we fall for different. And here's the really hard part about this whole thing. Oh, it's so hard. The idea that this text is so beautifully teaching a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Jesus is breaking those barriers, right? We're better, we're stronger, we're more beautiful because of our diversity. The hard part about this whole thing, this value that we want to be ingrained into the type of people that we are, into the type of church that we are, is that that means it has to be lived out. <laughs> it has to be expressed. And when we talk about our values and we talk about living out, we talk about these values being expressed, we do that in two ways. Corporately, so we talk about our, our values and, and the type of people we're becoming as a church together, the way that that value expresses itself as a church together. And we do that also personally. We talk about it personally. So like the li our individual lives and our spheres of influence. And so I'd like really quick to just close this morning talking through a little bit of our response to this beautiful, beautiful text, this beautiful value that's just written on the heart of Jesus and hopefully on ours as well. So first, corporately, together as a church, what does this mean for us this morning? What does this mean for our lives? I don't have an action step. <laughs> like I don't have a thing for us to do this morning together that we need to do this week or anything like that. In fact, I have an encouragement actually. I have an encouragement. Last week, this time, last week, last Sunday morning, I was sitting in church. I was sitting like right over there or something like that. And I was thinking about this week. I was thinking about this Sunday. And I think many of us, when we hear this idea, when we hear this value, if we're honest with ourselves, we have some thoughts, we have some conversations. And they usually go something like this. How are we supposed to do this? Like how are we supposed to do this on, in Cascade, in Grand Rapids, in West Michigan, how are we supposed to do this whole thing where different is beautiful, we're stronger, we're better, we're more beautiful because of our diversity, and in our diversity, we reflect the beauty of the kingdom of God to others. How are we supposed to do that? Moment of realness, I was sitting in here last Sunday thinking the same thing. Thinking about what I was bringing this, this, this week and thinking, how are we supposed to do this, God? And it was like a few seconds later that Aaron, who was sharing last week, she mentioned Paul in 1 Corinthians. You see, Paul writes a letter to this church in Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, he says to this church, he says, God is made perfect in our weakness. And as Aaron said this, I just heard God encourage me and encourage us and said, Austin, it's in your weakness and it's in your failures that I show up. It's in your weakness and in your failures that your faith is made complete. Your faith is made whole. In your weakness and in your failure, I show up. My honor, my power, my glory is revealed. So what if you don't know how to do this? In five years, 10 years, 15 years, when different is beautiful at TLC and people ask, I want you to be able to say, I have, we have no idea how we did this. It's in our weakness and it's in our failures that God's strength is made perfect. And I just felt him 
pouring that encouragement over me and pouring that over us as a church. That as we lean more and more into the church God has called us to be, as we invite others to fall more and more in love with Jesus, that we will become a community that more and more reflects the beauty of the kingdom of God with its fullness of types and traditions and backgrounds and ethnicities and abilities. And God is going to do that. TLC is not going to do that. You see, pursuing diversity is not easy. It's not natural. It, it just isn't. It's not for any organization. It's definitely not for any church. In fact, you, you read the New Testament of this thing, and the, the thing that's going to come up the most in the entire New Testament in the early church, right? Some people are like, we, we just got to get back to the early church. Like, that's when it was all pure. Well, that's when they were all, like, arguing about racism also. <laughs> Like all these people from all these different backgrounds are coming together in the community of Jesus and they all have their prejudices and their backgrounds and their prayers that they would pray. God, thank you, I'm not a woman or a slave or a Gentile. And it's complicated and it's hard. It always has been. And that's the same for us as a church. The truth is, church, this is a weakness of ours. And that's okay. Because that's where God's strength is going to be made perfect. I believe that. So that's corporate. Let's think personal now. Because I actually have like a next step. I have something that I want to invite us in together this morning as we move into a time of worship. And this is new to me. This is new to us as a church. A new way of thinking about how this value might express itself in our individual lives, in our sphere of influence. See, because so often I think that we hear a value like this. We hear a text that so beautifully teaches this idea And we think about how the beauty of the kingdom of God is reflected in in our diversity and our different traditions and backgrounds and ethnicities and abilities and all of this different stuff. And we think about others. We think about how diversity reveals the beauty of the kingdom of God to others. and, And we think about other people and their diversity and the way that they're different and how we need them. And that's not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. That's a great thing. But if it's the only way that we think about it, what gets lost in this whole thing is that each of us, each of us are created different. Each of us are created beautiful. Each of us are created uniquely, divinely designed, fearfully, wonderfully made to reveal the beauty of the kingdom of God to others. That's in each and every single one of us. And if we want to be a church that, re- that believes different is beautiful and in our diversity we are better and stronger and more beautiful and we reveal the beauty of kingdom of God to others, we have to be able to recognize that in ourselves. You know what I'm saying? We can't do something corporately if we don't even recognize it within ourselves individually, personally. And so this morning, I want to invite us into some of that. And you might be thinking, if you're skeptic like me, I'm skeptical. You might be thinking, this is a cop-out. This is a cop-out. I promise you, this is not a cop-out. I don't want everyone walking out of here feeling like they're their own perfect snowflake. Because honestly, the first product of self-knowledge is humility. In recognizing that the beauty of the one who created us. You see, we were created because he was creative. But what I want each and every one of us to recognize is the way that we have been uniquely, fearfully, wonderfully, beautifully made to reveal the beauty of the kingdom of God to others. And so this morning, as we move into some more worship, we're going to sing through a couple of songs. What I'd like us each to do is to take some time to think and to pray and recognize one way, one way that God has uniquely, divinely, creatively, beautifully 
powerfully, wonderfully made you. What is one way? And I have three sentences that I'd like you to write or pray. You can do in your phone, whatever floats your boat. And these three sentences are this. God, thank you for creating me. That's when you fill in the blank. What's the one way that you recognize God has uniquely created you, fearfully, wonderfully, divinely, beautifully created you to reveal his beauty to others? That's different. And then the second sentence I want you to write is help, the, help this draw me into deeper love with you, God. More of a prayer, right? Or a sentence. And then the third I want you to write, help me draw this into deeper love for others. Help this thing that you've given me, this way that you've created me, help this draw me into deeper love with you, God, and help me draw this into deeper love for others. And I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if you've been following Jesus for like 100 years and you've been at TLC since we were at Calvin and you're like all down with everything and you're totally going to do this. And I don't know if you're like checking out this whole Jesus thing and you've never been to TLC and this is your first time and you're like, Jesus, I don't know, man, I don't know. Wherever you're at, I beg you to do this. Because I believe and we believe that wherever you're at, that God has uniquely, divinely, fearfully, wonderfully, and beautifully created you. I want you to know that this morning. And I want you to recognize that within yourself. Some of us forget it. Some of us never recognize it. And so I want us to do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, you are so good. And you are so creative. I sit in a room with lots and lots of people, each of them different, created by you to reveal your beauty, and your honor, and your power. And as we move into a time of worship, I just pray, God, that you, you would place that one thing on each of us. That one thing that, that we recognize is only from you. A unique gift, a unique ability, a, a way of thinking a personality trait, whatever it is, God, that you would reveal that to each and every one of us. And that before, and that before we recognize that different is beautiful and, and we're trying to pursue it on our own, that we would sit back in reflection in awe and wonder of you and the way that you have created each and every one of us and the way that you will do that in our church together as a community. We love you so much, Father. It's not in our name that we pray these bold, bold things, but it's in the name of Jesus, who we have our hope and we have our life and we have our power in. To you be the honor and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.